Hello, and welcome to the Scrum edition of Political Traction. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. This week, we're gathering Navigator's greatest media minds together to discuss everything from vaccine shopping to the late Duke of Edinburgh. Carolyn Harvey was the executive producer of CBC's The National, Andre Pat was the editor-in-chief of La Presse, and Michael Cook was the editor of the Toronto Star. Today, I'm lucky to call all three of them my colleagues. We looked ahead to the first federal budget in over two years. It's coming on Monday. What does Trudeau need to accomplish? Plus, are you a friend of Pfizer or an AstraZeneca skeptic? Public health authorities say to take any vaccine offered to you, but consumers seem to have other ideas. Welcome to the Scrum. This is Political Traction. Okay, we're back for another week with our very special panel. I would like to, once again, as you know, welcome my colleagues, Michael Cook, Carolyn Harvey, and Andre Pratt back to the podcast for the Scrum. We have a full list of topics today, folks, and um, we even were chatting in advance and added a few, so hopefully we'll get through all of them. The first piece I wanted to talk to the panel today about is the coverage of vaccines um, and not so much availability, but uh, about how the media themselves are choosing to cover aspects of it. One around vaccine shopping. There was a very uh, somewhat controversial story uh, by CBC Regina where a resident thought she'd been given Pfizer vaccine and was, quote, shocked that she received AstraZeneca. Um, and there's been some additional coverage around how uh, the media are covering blood clots with both J&J and AstraZeneca. There's a case, the first case in Canada this week of uh, a woman with blood clotting. She is recovering safely at home, but you would be forgiven for not knowing that because it doesn't seem to get into any of the stories until the very end. So given I have a panel of people who led newsrooms, I wanted to ask you guys uh, what I feel a little bit like I understand we're rushing to cover this stuff, but I feel particularly around the AstraZeneca blood clot issue and around this vaccine hesitancy stuff, the media are being irresponsible with how much they're paying attention to this. And I would love to ask you guys your thoughts. Caroline, when you came in, you said you had some specific thoughts around the Regina sort of woman shock. She didn't get <laughs> Pfizer thing. I mean, what was your take on that? Actually, to be honest with you, the one that I was more commenting on was Marsha Barber. So the star publishing uh, uh, yes. her op-ed about, about vaccine shopping. And, but, but they blend into the same thing. So I, I think it's an interesting discussion because as journalists, and in newsrooms across this country, I think that the core value has always been that all, all opinions and, and beliefs and perspectives should be given should be given a place. I think that this year with COVID, we've, we've been forced to ask ourselves some difficult questions because I, I wonder whether that bar has shifted. So in my opinion, Marsha Barber's column was somewhat irresponsible. I think that this is a time when we are all asking people, whether they're politicians, business leaders, journalists, average Canadians, to demonstrate leadership and that we need to set the example, which is that to the we, science tells us that our best way through this is to get vaccinated and that we need to believe in science and we need to trust in our governments when they say it's safe. So to, to raise the question that one vaccine is better than another, I, I think is doesn't demonstrate the right kind of leadership at a time when what we need more than anything is to be to have more people confidently and, and carefully getting vaccinated. So I, I think it's a really interesting question. I have no doubt it's happening in newsrooms. Uh, we all know, I probably in our own lives, uh, I personally know a number of people who are very, very hesitant to get vaccines. And so we know that this is a 
a perspective that should be reflected in the news, but I think it's one that needs to be treated really carefully. And Michael, what do you, you know, you were at the star, they, the tweet, they did put out a tweet about this column, right? It was quote, I had the vaccine before I got job, but now I'm doing something very ungrateful. I'm questioning whether I could have done better. I wonder if I should have waited to get Pfizer or Moderna. That tweet was ratioed, which basically means people lost their minds and attacked it. So the star then deleted the tweet, but kept the column up. It's up right now. Um, I'm sure you've had incidents like this happen, Michael, but, but like if you're in the newsroom and you're making a decision to run this stuff, what do you, what goes through your mind when you do that? And how do you make that call? I don't know. What, I don't know how you decide to to run this particular writer's column. I mean, is she some kind of expert or just a regular person like the rest of us? You know, my own niece is on Facebook every day saying, "Don't take the vaccine." The vaccine, you can't believe the government. Don't and this gets multiplied, of course, with it being Facebook. And as I say to her, so if you don't want to take the vaccine because you think it's dangerous, do you think we shouldn't have the vaccine? Then no one in the world should take it. There, there isn't a word in the English language about how low the risk is. There isn't a word that covers that. It's so low. And so I think that that in, in this, you know, we hope rentless pursuit of the truth that journalism is about, we ought to stick into those stories what we always stick in when we do a, a, an opinion poll, a political poll. We always say the poll is accurate, three percentage points, 19 times out of 20. Or what we started to do in a couple of years into Trump when we did the journal, when we did the journalism sandwich, we said what the president said, which was a lie. Then we said the truth. And then we said what else he said. So somewhere in every single story about vaccines, the second paragraph needs to be, this is nonsense. And here's why. So in fairness to, to Marsha Barber and to the star, I mean, she did have qualifying paragraphs and comments and, and even checked her, her own sense. But nonetheless... That perspective is what was put out there, but I agree with you. Well, 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 I would ask her if you sat in front of me, and I'd ask it nicely over a nice glass of wine or coffee or something. I say, <laughs> what, what, what outcome did you want from that column? What did you want people to do after they read your column? Not have the vaccine and wait? Is that what you wanted? Well, I, I just wonder, like, what, what conversation are we trying to have as a, as a country, right? I mean, as a particularly as a woman who took hormonal birth control for decades. Um, I did not smoke during that time, but I mean, the blood clotting risk of that is, is massively significantly greater than that of getting AstraZeneca or Johnson and Johnson. I'm more likely to hit by a bus crossing the street than I am to get, and I'm not saying that people have not gotten ill. Like that is obviously tragic, but for the love of all that's holy, when the first case came out in, in Canada, which I emphasize again, the woman is from Quebec and she is resting at home safely. It was like breathless wall to wall coverage on CP24. I just... It, I find it very frustrating because I've had to convince people in my life to go take it. Um, Andre, what do you make of all of this? The media have always had a difficulty with this, keeping a sense of proportion, right? And uh, and so they cover events like they're very focused on one particular event. And what are the probabilities of this event happening? Uh, sometimes it escapes us. To be fair, I mean, you can, on, on the blood clot story, for instance, you can find in several uh, serious media information on what the real danger is or what the real risk is. But of course, if you, for instance, if you emphasize, hey, a first case in Canada, it's like, practically, if it's a great news, we have to be proud. We finally have a case in Canada. <laughs> so it's, yeah, I think there's a there's an issue of, of, of keeping a sense of proportion. And sometimes media are very bad at this. And but it's, it's uh, at the same time, I mean, you know, uh, what are the authorities doing? I mean, for instance, in the US, they're now pausing the J&J vaccine because of these blood clots. So I mean, 
as an ordinary person, I don't know, I'm not a scientist, but if scientists think, think that this is serious, serious enough to pause the, the vaccine, I'm tempted to think, well, maybe this is serious after all, so. Well, it does certainly, it does certainly bring attention to it. I mean, two things I'd say, Mandy, you gave the example of birth control. So, that, so they say it's one in 250,000, your, your chance of getting a blood clot with the AstraZeneca vaccine. It's one in 2,000 with birth control. Yeah. It's one in 1,000 if you get on a flight, every flight, and it's one in 10 if you have COVID. So, wow. you know, just putting that out there, and, and those are all things that many, many Canadians, if not all Canadians have done, have, you know, have experienced either mm -hmm. they've taken birth control or they know someone who has, or they've been on an airplane. And, and so I think having those, that sort of really relatable comparison is, is important. And, and I think we need to do more of it. What I see is that that's being generated by, by average, by Canadians, not so much necessarily through media, but through, through citizens. And they're trying to get those kinds of comparisons out there for people to consume. Well, maybe those numbers that you've just given should, I mean, God knows those stories in the Globe and the Star and the Post and every other paper are long enough. You could put uh, you could put that paragraph in every single story. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm kind of not kidding. You know, it's it's pretty clear that we've tried hard and we're not going to lock down our way out of this pandemic. Vaccinations are not just a key, but they are the key. And of course, we know that we're not doing well on vaccinations. We've got these big sites open across our major cities, and they've had to close down because we don't have the supply. So we've got many problems on the vaccination front, and there's only one there's only one uh, responsibility the government has right now, which is to save our lives. And part of saving our lives is to get on top of this vaccine nonsense. Yeah, so it's, anyway, I think it's an interesting question that I'm sure is happening in the newsrooms across the country, which is just what is the media's role in furthering that objective? Mm -hmm. well, could, I, 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 could I ask Andre just a quick question? It's yeah. Just so slightly off vaccine, but it's on, on COVID. The curfew in Montreal, that I won't call them protests because they were really more like little riots, but is the curfew working in, in a cause and effect? Well, the government says it's working, but it's, you know, we don't really have data. They, they use data from Google, you know, showing that people uh, circulate less when there's a curfew, which is sort of obvious. And therefore, they, the, the government believes that it reduces the number of contacts and therefore uh, reduces the number of cases. But the problem is, and I think that's where the issue of what you know, the media's role is. Uh, the problem is some of the decisions in Quebec, particularly, have been taken on the basis of the best science available. And that's great. But other de decisions have been purely political. And I don't mean political in the partisan sense, but I mean, they've been, the decisions have been taking, taken for whatever the motivations by politicians, the premier, and so on. And that's the, the, this, the difference between the two types of decisions uh, I mean, the media have to be able to criticize decisions that have been taken for political motives, right? I mean, even if it's a pandemic, you, you can question, for instance, the usefulness of, of a curfew and whether it's good to have curfew at 8 or at 9.30 or whatever. And uh, uh, that's where I think the difficulty uh, is. That is, what is... Uh, what is correct to have a critical debate on an issue and what is really what is that what is it that you cannot touch for instance vaccination is vaccination totally uh, uh, should be immune to any kind of criticism I tend to think yes but others would argue no and that the other point of view should should also have its place in the newspapers of the country vaccination hesitation does exist right 
I always remember when I was at CBC, when and I, I know you would have all had the same experience, but you know, if your objective is is fairness, representation of, of both perspectives, where, where the rule is in the JSP is that that doesn't exist when the, when there is a vast majority of the population who believe in something. So, for example, it was a big day to celebrate in the newsroom when you know you no longer had to balance your coverage of climate change because mm-hmm. climate change was now accepted by a large enough percentage of the population to, to be, to exist. Therefore, you were not required as journalists to give fair and equal coverage of people who, who don't, didn't believe in climate change. And I remember that day so clearly. So I, I wonder, I suspect the question around vaccines and the efficacy and the necessity of Canadians and, and people around the world taking it. I wonder whether those discussions have been had in, in that sort of in the context of, are, is the balance so far one way that it, it therefore is not only okay, but actually responsible to, to focus only on, not, not to call it into question. It's not the place for it. Interesting. Okay. Um, I want to move us on to the next topic here. Uh, budget. So it is pre-budget season in Canada, um, and it's been a while. The last federal budget was delivered 759 days ago, which is the longest <laughs> counting. The longest, but longest gap in Canadian history by a long shot. Um, this, the budget will be delivered on the April 19th, which is three days from when this is aired. How, how uh, could we survive without a budget? I mean, apparently, wonder. you can run an entire government and you don't need a budget. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been running my life without a budget for 30 oh, well, okay. something plus years. I won't give the, day, the, the exact age. Um, the stakes are pretty high for the Trudeau government. They have floated in no particular order, uh, a national child care system, um, universal basic income, pharmacare. Um, I would like a pony in addition. Um, they've also <laughs> begun um, dropping less appetizing political stories out there. Um, just this week, they announced the start of the airline bail- bailout with the deal with Air Canada. Um, this is all with the backdrop that for the first time in Canadian history, the parliamentary budget officer says federal debt levels could go past $1 trillion. Um, they're estimating it's $252 billion this last year alone. Um, and we have one of the largest debt burdens among developed nations. Um, Japan is the only one that is higher. So not that anyone seems to care about that, given the long list of nice things that the government's going to give to us. So I would love to set your take on what you expect in this budget. Um, and do you think this is an election budget? Uh, I will say I think it's an election budget. And my bet pound for pound is we get national child care. Um, and I think the other ones they'll say, oh, they'll be very nice to have in, you know, 10 years or decade or two decades or some such thing. But will, um, we, will we really get national child care? That's my, because for instance, Pharmacare, they've announced it about 10 times, right? <laughs> and, and they, so what, but when you read into the announcement, what it really is, is that they will form a committee of experts who will determine what, what this Pharmacare will look like. And the next budget after that, it's another committee that will decide whatever. So my impression is that this time is the, is, is the right one, that they will spend the money that is needed to have a national child care program. Uh, but in a way, in my view, it's sort of the worst time possible because the, you know, the, the, the treasury is, 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 is empty and we're, we're, you know, as you mentioned, the debt is very high. But this government seems to believe, and probably they're right, that the Canadians don't care about about the debt right now. They just, you know, they want this new beginning after the pandemic and the national child care. And to, to I mean, to be fair, national child, the child care system in Quebec as it has been developed over the last uh, more than 20 years is, is a real 
success. I mean, it's, it's successful because it, it allowed many women to go back to work or to go to the workplace. And, and it's been good for the economy. It's expensive, but uh, it, it has had great effects. So my, I don't question the need for it. I, I may question the timing of it. Are there any measurements that you say it's been a success? And are there any measurements on how it's affected children, their growth, their development, their pedagogical development, the, the, how they work in society? Are, are the kids different for having had children? I think it's a, a harder one to measure. Um, I, it's interesting because okay. I was involved in doing some a fair bit of research on it a number of years ago. And so Quebec's objective set out that they wanted to increase the number of women in the workforce. They wanted to create revenue, um, b- believe that it would create revenue so the program would ultimately pay for itself or come close. And the third was a, a real focus on child development and how that would you know, make for better children of the future. The middle one is the last one is, is much harder one to measure. I, I'm not that there is a definitive answer on, on whether that part has worked. I think the default subjective response is that it has. But in Quebec, I mean, the number of women participating in the workforce is among the highest in the world. Right. And, and compared against, you know, countries that are, you know, Sweden, Denmark, Australia, countries where they, they too have programs like this. So it's 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 amazing that way. But um, so I'm with you, Amanda. I think it's an election budget. And I think the fact that we think universal child care is the top list also speaks to that because it, it, it appeals to women. And we all know that uh, women are such an important voting block and one that Leaders are always trying to reach, and I think interesting for the budget to be delivered by Christian Friedland and also for her to be advocating for that. I also think it's interesting because it hits into so many other social issues that have been discussed around inequity and national child care addresses so many of those, or in theory does. Um, you know, that the, the people and the communities that have been hardest hit by COVID will, will most benefit from a universal child care program. So I, I do think it's it creates, it ticks so many boxes for the government that I'm voting on that one too. I, I just want to ask, um, I, like, I agree with you on a lot of that. Um, I do want to ask Andre real quickly. So I actually had Margaret McCain on the podcast a couple episodes ago and she leads the McCain Foundation and they've been advocating for um, early years programming. And she actually said Quebec has been a good example, but that's not necessarily the system they're advocating for because they want a greater emphasis on development of children and education of, of young children. And then that has been sort of lacking in sort of how that system works. It also doesn't bring in the private sector as much as they think would make it successful. So I guess curious for you, is the system in Quebec, like my sister-in-law is, lives in Montreal and they, they use it and like it. Um, but has it, is it universally applauded or do people criticize, like people complain about it? Like what's the, what is the, what's the feeling in Quebec and the success rate of it? And would, do we think they'll just carbon copy it to the rest of the country? Well, I don't think they should carbon copy it. I think it's part, you know, it's it's been developed in Quebec and taking into account the specific needs of, of Quebecers and of Quebec women in particular. And, and for instance, one thing that is criticized is that still today, the poorest of the poorest don't use the public child care program. They keep their kids at home. And therefore, these are, in many cases, these are the people, the children that were the priority of the new system, right? Helping these children who don't, who are not stimulated, who are not uh, by, by less so by, because of the difficulties that their parents are going through. Uh, but they're not using the system as much as, as we would have hoped. So that's one criticism. There's also a big debate in Quebec as to what the role of the private sector is, right? The government cannot really afford to have all these 
public childcare facilities. So the public sector takes care of part of it. And some believe that the services, the educational services in the private sector are not as good as the ones in the public sector. I don't know if it's true or not. But it, it, so, you know, that's one reason why it will be very interesting to see what the approach of the federal government is. Will they approach it like sort of the National Healthcare Act, which is, it has to you know, respect yeah. a certain number of principles and then give the money to the provinces. I think it should allow for some diversity, right? Because the culture in Alberta is not the same as it is in Quebec or, or in Atl the Atlantic provinces. Let's hope that's that's what it is. Um, Michael, I wanted to ask you, so moving off childcare, um, there are other, there will be other things in this budget, I'm guessing, I'm sure, <laughs> find ways to spend more money. Um, we had some news this week in particular around the Air Canada deal, and I know you had some thoughts on that. Oh, well, you got to ask yourself, I think, on, on Air Canada, it's, it's, it, it, I think it's a stick up, you know, there's, there's no doubt that Air Canada has <laughs> been, been burning through millions of dollars a day for more than a year and that's all down to the pandemic it's it's already gone to the market itself to raise billions of dollars and and the new gift from Ottawa um, you know it, it, without it it would have had to go back to the market and raise more money paying a little bit more than what the government's going to charge them in interest but you've got to say does Air Canada need it I'm not sure they were record profits you know for the past year Air Canada itself has been sat on nearly two and a half billion dollars of your money, my money, my neighbor's money for flights that never took place and simply saying, no way, Jose, when people ask for their money back, their money. I put that in capital letters. So Air Canada has had this, this passenger's money, our money for a year. It's not paying interest on it and it's likely getting interest. It's likely parked somewhere. So that's a pretty cheap form of getting to working capital. And the Air Canada PR spin doctors don't bother to tell us. They just want us to feel pride that our national government is giving money to our national airline, which, can, which Air Canada is not. And uh, I'll just do a little asterisk here. As an aside, WestJet started to give its money back to its customers more than seven or eight months ago. So Air Canada's already received millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, and rightly so, in government pandemic aids. And, but we have a terrible history in this country and others when governments try to help industry out of their mess. I think, I forget the number, I think it was three or four billion dollars that went down the B-Day on, uh, on, the, on the auto industry. Yeah. Uh, so, and now, a worst, and the worst thing of all this is that we're going to take, the government's going to sit on the board, we're going to take an ownership stake in Air Canada. Come on. Uh, you know, government government bureaucratic participation in the airlines has been a colossal failure around the world. You get knee deep in treacle at the board level. They make awful decisions, many of them for political reasons. And the only good thing about it is it's government. So at least those awful decisions will be implemented very slowly. So my only I agree with most of what you said, my only kind of bugaboo about this airline deal is that of all of the, the the airline industry itself was probably one of the most impacted by the pandemic, right? Like they were shut down right away with no, and the government mandate, they had no way to make any money, like literally no way to make any money. And they did not get any sector specific bailout. They did it for everybody else, but the airlines, all they got, they got access to the faux leaf program that sat around for a year that they had to pay money to actually try and get, and they got no funding out of it. Finally, I think AC cut a deal, uh, but it was, it was a, it was a terrible program. And Instead, the Trudeau government realized the optics of bailing out the airline. So instead they said, no, no, we won't mandate you to refund customers. That's fully within the government's authority. So instead, the Trudeau government took the politically cowardice way out and forced Canadians to loan the airline's money. And now a year later, 
they figured out a way to message it in the budget. So now all of a sudden that money's going to flow back. Like the, the weird thing people don't realize, I think, is that the, the federal government, because they did not provide a bailout early on in this pandemic like they should have, put that on the backs of Canadians at the worst possible time for many of them. Those are lots of families who, you know, save all year for, you know, a $2,000 all-inclusive vacation to, you know, God knows whatever, like Cancun or something with their family. And that's money I, they could use now. And like, that's the, that's on the Trudeau government to me. I think I'm not wild about the AC deal either. I hate when governments sit on private boards and be buying to private companies. I think it's nuts. But part of this is this is their stinky mess. And I am, am, I, am, I, am I mistaken here that uh, what is happening, in fact, is that Air Canada is finally giving money back to its customers, but the government, in a way, is paying them to do this, right? That's, yeah, that's so sort of It's public money. So Air Canada is not really reimbursing anyone. They're just taking the government money and giving, giving it to customers. That's a s- strange arrangement, in my view. And we're pa- yeah, we're paying for it, and they get it. we get a small piece of the, the action on the board. Um, all right. Uh, we have a finite amount of time and two more things I want to get into. Lastly, it was the liberal convention last weekend and the NDP convention, but I don't think anyone paid attention much to either, except for we saw the launch of Mr. Mark Carney, who has now declared himself someone who will help the liberals win uh, no matter what. He made a major speech. Um, and here are some quotes that I have just pulled Um that I would just love your thoughts because we talked about his run early on. He's an undisputably very smart, very accomplished man. Um, we'll park the idea of a former central banker now all of a sudden becoming a political candidate and what that does to the independence of that institution. That's a whole other podcast. Um, here's a quote he said, we know the value of Amazon, but not the value of Amazon. You think about what we leave as a legacy. It's our values. Markets don't have values. People do. Um, to which one conservative strategist replied, I could literally write the SWOT analysis that produced this twaddle. He's going to be insufferably bad at this. I would second that <laughs> right now. Um, curious what you thought of this unveiling and his speech, if you saw it, or even the Twitter comment, the Twitter quotes of, of things. Well, I, I haven't read this 600 page uh, book, but. Uh... <laughs> oh, come on. You must be on one of those shelves behind you. Yeah, well, it, yes, it, it will be, but uh, I mean, no, I, I, I'm, af- I'm afraid that uh, I mean, he's a he's a fantastic person. Obviously, he's very accomplished, and yeah. I think politics would Canadian politics would gain a lot if he got involved. You know, the thing is, as we all know, to be a politician is very different than from being a business uh, leader, even a successful business leader, or a very successful central banker. And does does he have what it takes what it takes to be a successful successful politician we don't know and what we've seen to this point it is intellectually impressive and we're not surprised by this because he's an intellectually impressive person but it's not politically impressive in in my in my view I but he will... can learn he can learn yeah i think actually andre i think you are you are bang on from my perspective on i think you're exactly right he's an impressive guy intellectually it sounds very smart um i can't imagine anyone voting for it but we will uh we will see how this rolls and i'm sure this will come up again all right i'm going to move to the last topic for the podcast today which is the passing of um prince philip um at the age of 99 uh the funeral um or service for his will be taking place tomorrow so curious given you guys all led newsrooms um the royal family is She's the queen is still our head of state. I do think it's significant. I've covered it myself on my radio show quite a few times. Um, so curious, one, do you think Canadians care about this? And two, 
did you have any personal engagement? Did you cover the Royals? Did you interact with Prince Philip? Um, I kind of, I've, he's kind of been one of my like secret favorite Royals just because of his, <laughs> I'm not surprised. Him yeah. <laughs> it's like, his, yeah, given my commentary <laughs> and stuff, it's like, I like somebody who tells like some of his stuff is over the top, but I, I find his sense of humor um, amusing. So I will throw it out there. Um, I know Caroline, you mentioned that you, uh, you had some interesting conversations around covering mm-hmm. the roles when you were at CBC and you'd also kind of bet it's been at a few events. So maybe you can kick us off. Uh, well, only to say that I, I have to say, personally, I'm not somebody who follows the royal family closely, but I will tell you, based on my experience uh, at CBC, that there is no question that the vast majority of Canadians do. And, and we always used to joke that it's one of those polling questions that people may say that they don't care about the royals, but they're the first ones to tune into every moment of the royal wedding or to watch the Oprah Winfrey interview with Meghan Markle. So I would I can tell you without a doubt that Canadians care or at least engage with royal content in a, in a really meaningful way in this country. And I don't know whether it's because we like the tradition of it, whether we like the sort of quote unquote celebrity of it, whether we like our connection to something. I mean, I think there's a variety of things, but I can tell you that it's very, that it's very real, at least as, as you measure audiences. I'd be interested, Andre, if it's different in Quebec, but it's, it's, it's certainly true in Canada. And I have to say that, um, so two things. One is that I did I did go with CBC to cover a couple of different royal events, most recently um, Harry and Meghan's wedding. And it was just incredible to see the spectacle. But also, if you have any question, like CBC had a full live set. CTV had a full live set. Global News had a full live set. I mean, Canadian news organizations were there in a, I mean, as were worldwide news organizations, but I've never seen such press, such a huge footprint. Of, of media covering something. Um, the other thing that I think is, is just interesting or was interesting to me in watching some of the coverage when, when the prince passed away was Jean Chrétien was, did an interview. I think he did numerous interviews, but I happened to see his one on CBC News. And he was great about how much he liked Prince Philip. And to your point, Amanda, why he liked him is because Chrétien said they had this shared value of saying what they thought and that they, they had for many years. He said up until, I think he said, like within the last year, Satya had a one-on-one with the prince, that they had a real affinity for each other, I think because of their disdain in some ways, but but their the charm that they both had through the way that they spoke their minds and, and that they were slightly off the mold and, and they had an affinity for each other, which I thought was really interesting to hear. Um, Michael, well, you were born in England and yeah. now you're in Canada. So what's your whole take well, on that? I tell you, I'm not a I'm not a royalist. I, I think Canada should grow up to be a, a republic, but it won't because we're constitutionally unable to go down that road. So we will have a uh, a King Charles and we will have a, a King William. I admire uh, Philip so much, um, and I'll give you two or three very quick reasons. One, even after being married for seventy odd years, uh, he could still get into the trousers he wore on his wedding day. <laughs> he, 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 he had a thirty three inch waist. Why did he have that? Because because every day he did the RCAF exercises, which uh, which did not require that. I mean, he predates Jane Fonda in that workout. It doesn't require a health club membership, doesn't require <laughs> any fancy machinery. Uh, uh, I think it's called uh, 5BX, which I think is, uh, is five, five basics every day. So I'm, I'm uh, taking I, notes here. I'm taking yeah, notes. Well, yeah. It's a great uh, scene in the crown. Yeah. You can watch it. Andre. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to start the RCAF exercise program, but not today. It'll be uh, tomorrow. So, so there we see. I think he's made, look, he's made a dozen uh, uh, 
bad gaffes throughout his throughout his ninety nine years. Three or four of them have been have been have been very serious. But his legacy is not is not the uh, the ugliness of what some people call racism or fascism. I, I think it's his legacy is the Duke of Edinburgh Award, which has rescued hundreds, maybe thousands of young young men, young women from going down the wrong path. And I think I think that that's his legacy. He, he loves Canada. I think. I mean, he's been more than any other role. He's been certainly more than more than 50 times. And I think he had a freshness about him that uh, there's a story in Britain today about the British army, uh, which soldiers are no longer now able to call their colleagues uh, lads uh, because uh, that could cause offense uh, and they're not allowed to use the word sportsmanship and, and, and things like that. And I think we should take every new fad that we have and ask ourselves, what would Prince Philip say? And then <laughs> act accordingly uh, based on that. And I think it's also bad when you hear these criticisms of these gaffes, which they were gaffes. I mean, some of them are painful to hear. They're painful to hear then. They're doubly painful to hear now. But I think it's a bit much when you get these, you know, mewling millennial Marxists on Twitter, you know, accusing the generation that actually fought fascism, fought fascism and put their lives on the line to call that man a fascist. And there are not many of his kind left, more's a pity. He was a character and we need more characters in this world like him. Here, here. All right, wow. Andre. I, I, I feel like we should just wrap it up. But I, Andre, I do want to know your how this. What you th- you're, I mean, you're Quebecois, like how, royal family we know is viewed very differently there. How is yep. this story playing in Quebec? Well, I mean, there's there's not in Quebec, obviously, in fr- Francophone Quebec, the same emotional attachment to the monarchy or to the queen or, or, or whatever. But there is certainly a keen interest into the celebrity aspect uh, of it. And I think there's respect for the queen. Uh, you know, even through our history, I think people respect her as a person for how, how long and how well she, uh, uh, she, she has done her duty. I remember once uh, covering, um, I shook hands with the, the queen, actually, I should say this right now, Did in you? 1982, yeah, when oh, she wow. came for the patriation she was very impressed apparently and second i was there for the for, i was there for the coverage of lady die when she came to ottawa and there was a group of quebec stars sports singers uh, you know all artists quebec celebrities and when lady die came into the room they were so excited and that sort of indicated to me that whatever people say in Quebec that, you know, they don't like the monarchy, they don't like the queen, they're, they're certainly very attracted to parts of what the monarchy represents. And so, um, and I personally have great respect for the institution. If there's one monarchist in Quebec, I'm it, so. <laughs> All right. We've got a Quebec monarchist and an English. <laughs> an English so all I know is we have a whole new exercise regime. Maybe we're yeah. be- all right, everyone. Right. We will each try this in the next month between episodes and report back next month about how we do. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. That was an awesome podcast. We made it through all the topics and uh, we will, uh, we'll see you next month. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Thanks everybody. Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show is produced by John Gardner, Simon Breton, Kimberly Drapak, Hunter Nifton, and Nico Waltenbury. A very special thank you goes out to this week's guests, Carolyn Harvey, Andre Pratt, and Michael Cook. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate us online wherever you find your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Traction Poly. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. We'll see you next Friday. <laughs>